let's make sure the biblical story is critiquing everything, not just without, but even the places within that we might have smuggled in some of the idolatrous lies told by our culture, but we've just kind of baptized them with some Christianese. You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. Hello and welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javet. Today I am joined uh, once again by Matt Bennett. Our topic today centers around his new book, Hope for American Evangelicals a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. With so much happening in American evangelicalism uh, lately, I am excited to hear Matt's missionary perspective on a way forward for the American church. Matt and his wife, Emily, spent several years in North Africa and the Middle East prior to returning to the U.S., where Matt teaches missions and theology at Cedarville University. Uh, Matt is the author of 40 Questions About Islam and the Quran and the Christian, along with, the, uh, along with his uh, recent book, Hope for American Evangelicals. Thanks for joining us, brother, today. I appreciate you, and uh, thank you for being here, Matt. Oh, absolutely, Alphonse. I'm really glad to be with you again. So before we get started, Please tell us very briefly about your family again. I know that we had you on the show in the past, but uh, you know it's been some time. So would you mind sharing a little bit about your uh, family? Because I believe family is important and it uh, um, allows our audience to see that we are not just robots and uh, uh, talking about subject or giving some content. We are a human being uh, and we have families and we are real people. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I am blessed with a wonderful partner in ministry and my wife, Emily. Um, she and I uh, met in undergrad, ministered together in a campus ministry for a while, did seminary together at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where we studied to go overseas, uh, ended up in North Africa and the Middle East for about seven years, where the Lord allowed us just the joy of getting to partner side by side and the everyday work of, of ministry in a Muslim majority population. Um, during that time, he gave us three kids and they have grown. Uh, they're still young, but uh, they're becoming the next layer of partners in ministry. And so it's a delight to get to see them growing in their faith and incorporate them into, into some of our work too. That's amazing. Uh, I do believe uh, uh, raising children, I mean, that's our first mission field, right? In our family. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the, as a pastor, that's what I do. I disciple them first by living, by uh, speaking. And my hope and prayer is one day, one day they become partners in the ministry of the gospel in the kingdom work. Um, well, just so we can be clear for any listening in for the first time, uh, what is American evangelicalism specifically? Help us to understand what is this American evangelicalism? Yeah, well, on one hand, that's a very loaded question because there's a lot of people who want to have very different definitions. Uh, I think my intent in this is not to 
nail down one very specific and perfect definition, but just a function off of what's been kind of the traditional way that people have thought of an evangelical as distinct from, let's say, just a Protestant in general. And traditionally, uh, there's a guy named David Bebbington. Uh, a lot of times people say the Bebbington quadrilateral is what makes up evangelicalism. And that's four basic points, like the first one being people who are Christians who center on the biblical teaching, biblical authority, and a sense of wanting the Bible to control and inform all of our practice and faith. The second sort of peg of those four would be Christ's atonement on the cross being central and um, being the means by which we are made right with God. The third one, uh, the necessity for individual conversion, that this is something that individuals must hear of the message and respond to it in faith as individuals, not merely as collective wholes, um, but as individuals. There's no being born into Christianity. Uh, everyone is converted into it. And then the fourth one just being that uh, this focus on a gospel-driven and active life of both sanctification personally, and then also outreach, a focus on evangelism. So there's a lot of nuance that could be added into those things, but my primary aim in this book is to try to rescue evangelical from becoming a dirty word, because sometimes people are looking at it today and they're saying, well, white evangelicals are the problem with America. Um, and so evangelical gets wrapped up into a whole uh, a whole way of framing a subculture. And I, I want to rescue that back and say, no, the, the, the structure of evangelicalism is worth rescuing, even if we might in, inspect some of the places that there's, there's real need for uh, addressing some issues. Yes. That's well, uh, again, um, as you said, there's so much uh, there, just what you just said, there, each of those things need uh, so much more explanation um, again, maybe that's why we are talking about this so people can get the book and read through and understand some of those aspects. But I do understand uh, the need to separate these two things because I, 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 I think you're right. There is this, this idea that people are trying to separate themselves from uh, evangelical, evangelical um, rhetoric because uh, how, and you know, it's, Clearly, the reason is what happened uh, politically, how it was uh, tied to that. So um, those things. Anyway, so let me let me take let's go back to our conversation. Um, so what led you to write this book and mm -hmm. what led you to use the metaphor of a house for American evangelicalism? Yeah. So uh, you mentioned a couple of different books that I wrote beforehand. Those were academic books. This one is not intended to be academic. It's intended to be something that's just serving the church in general. And so uh, one, of the, one of the benefits of writing an academic book is that if somebody assigns it in a classroom, people who buy it have to read it and they have to keep going, even if it's boring as can be. If you're trying to incentivize people who aren't being forced to read it to work through it, you've got to have some some color and some flavor in the book. And so this image of a, a house is something that's kind of a, an extended analogy throughout the book. And 
in many ways, it's reflective of a season in my life in which I had grown up in really one home, and it was my my childhood place of of uh, upbringing. It was home in every way that I know it to be. Uh, but then I went away to college, and I spent a couple of years afterwards. And my dad passed away, and my mom was getting ready to sell the house. And so I came back six years later, and I started looking at this house that was so intimately familiar to me and a place that meant so much to me because of the nostalgic memories that I had connected to it. But I was looking at it through different eyes. I was looking at it through the eyes of somebody who was trying to say, I want this space to be appealing to somebody who's looking at it for the first time, who doesn't have the benefit of overlooking some of its shortcomings because it's just always been that way. And I use the analogy of uh, remembering some of the, the sticky cabinets in our kitchen. To this day, I can tell you, uh, my muscle memory could still tell you exactly how much pressure you needed to apply to get the cabinet to open uh, because it wasn't smooth. It was over lacquered or something like that. But we didn't fix it when I was growing up because it was just something we could accommodate our, ham our habits to. You just pull a little bit harder, right? So it's something that's wrong with the house, but we've just accustomed ourselves to it. We've created different habits. But now if we go back and we're trying to say, I want this place to be everything it could be for somebody who doesn't have that history with this place, you start to say, oh, there's actually some, some changes that need to be made. So uh, I use that as kind of an extended analogy to even talk about what does it look like for my family and I to come from having lived for seven years in North Africa and the Middle East, now coming back home. And honestly, those, those seven years we were gone were pretty, uh, pretty volatile in broad evangelicalism. I mean, we were out of the country in 2016. We were out of the country in 2014. And some of these major things that, uh, that have happened and shaped the country, some major scandals that have broken in churches that have allowed a lot of people to look at the church and say, maybe this thing is fundamentally broken. Well, we've come back and we're looking at some of these issues and affirming, my goodness, yeah, there's, there's some problems here, but I don't want to throw out the whole thing. So maybe if I looked at some of these issues, not as somebody who's deeply embedded in them, but rather as somebody who's intentionally taking missionary lenses uh, that are keyed in to observe a culture and to begin to consider what would it look like to present the gospel beautifully in this place. Maybe those missionary lenses can be applied to looking back even internally at the church and saying, what is it about this place that, and some of these particular issues that if we looked at it as a missionary would look at it, would reshape some of our approach to dealing with it. So these missionary lenses that you were talking about is the missionary perspective. So help us to understand what is a missionary perspective, because that's part of your book, right? That's what you're saying. That's right. What yeah. is a missionary perspective and how is it useful here in the United States? And if other people are hearing somewhere else in their own locality, but in this, this subject matter that we are discussing right now, what is this, this missionary perspective here? Uh, that's great. Uh, another thread that I weave throughout the book is introducing a uh, a missionary theologian uh, who is somebody who a lot of people, at least in 
American evangelicalism probably aren't real familiar with him. His name is Leslie Newbegin, and he is somebody who served throughout the middle of the 20th century for about 40 years in India in various capacities. And then he returned back home in his mid-70s, took up a career at a, as an academic, and then served in a church um, kind of with a second career uh, of his, his ministry. But he began writing pretty extensively as he had returned home as somebody who had been shaped by his exposure to a foreign context, something that he wasn't born in, in which he was looking at this culture and seeing idolatry all around him in certain ways. Um, in a place like India, lots of the, the, the Hindu temples and shrines, you go into somebody's house and you see a physical idol present there. But then he had returned home and realized, my goodness, there may not be as many shrines or physical idols, but my my antenna that I developed for idolatry as a missionary are still picking up the fact that, oh, wait, there's there's idolatry there in my home country. And he became attuned to some of those uh, some of those places where worship is being misdirected, even though he was doing that in a place that was more familiar than it was foreign to him. And so in some ways. The idea of a missionary perspective is becoming attentive to wherever our culture, our church even, is perhaps drawing more on stories about the world that are being told by more idolatrous systems than biblical systems. And it's an attempt to say, let's, let's make sure the biblical story is critiquing everything, not just without, but even the places within that we might have smuggled in some of the idolatrous lies told by our culture, but we've just kind of baptized them with some Christianese. One, maybe one example could illustrate this. I have a chapter on the bedroom. Um, and as I walk through the bedroom, we're talking about the, the role of, of sex and sexuality in the church. Clearly, in the last decade, that conversation has taken some new shape to it, as we're not just talking about sex as adultery outside of marriage, uh, but we're talking about all kinds of different expressions of sex that our society is saying are equally as valid. Um, uh, for the church, we're trying to wrestle through this. How do we hold out a biblical vision for sex and sexuality in a world that's rampantly running, uh, running in a, a direction contrary to biblical teaching? Well, Part of that chapter, I actually tried to say, let's, before we look externally, let's look internally and consider, have we smuggled in some of the idolatrous promises that the culture has told about sex and sexual fulfillment into the church, but we've just kind of kept them behind a hedge of morality in such a way as to say, uh, here's the example I use for my own life. I remember as a kid growing up, there was a part of me that would pray the prayer, Lord, I want you to come back, like Jesus, come back, but please come back after I've gotten married. And the implication was I had bought the lie that there was some part of me that would be unsatisfied if I had not been freed to indulge my sexual desires. But I also knew that as a Christian, it was proper for me to wait to engage in sexual activity until I was married. So I waited to engage in sexual activity until I was married. 
But all the while, I had still kept that idolatrous vision of what sex might provide for me in my heart. And so I wonder if the, if there's a sense in which rooting out idolatry is actually going to reframe some of the way that we even talk about sexual ethics to be able to say, before we ever get to some of those expressions, let's make sure we're not asking sex to play a role that it was never designed to. Is it a good part of God's design? Absolutely. Is it something to be celebrated within the bounds that he has created it for? Certainly. But is it something that we would ask to or that we would believe the lie that it can actually fulfill a part of us, that's where we need to identify. There's there's a counter-biblical lie that we're sort of smuggling in um, that we need to put to death. So some of that training to identify where idolatry happens, I, I think, is is helpful as we don missionary lenses. Yeah, excellent. And I think uh, throughout your book, uh, you you actually give us this tour um, and uh, those uh, who are listening, please get the book and uh, get the full flavor and exposure to that. But here's uh, what I would like to see. Would you uh, take a tour? Uh, would you please take a tour through the house, the bedroom, the living room, the dining room, the yard, the the neighborhood, etc. Um, and and just just throughout the book, the way you did it, just help us to understand how you are seeing different things, different elements through this. Missionary perspective. Can you please walk us uh, uh, through some of these places? Yeah. So each chapter starts with like a page or two, kind of introducing you to my experience of walking back through that childhood home now with the intent to look at it as somebody who's preparing it to be presentable. But then each one of the rooms that we look at is kind of layered onto a different issue that the church might be faced with. So as we approach, kind of talk about the neighborhood. And the idea is that the the space was familiar, but over time, things had changed kind of slowly and maybe imperceptibly so that some of the ways that I operated, thinking that was the way things still worked, were actually contrary to the way the neighborhood functioned because I hadn't noticed or I had been gone during the time that uh, that some of these changes had slowly and imperceptibly occurred. So there's a call to recognize even within our neighborhoods that we need to be assessing the the culture and the worldview of our neighbors in a way that allows us to make sure that we know how they're perceiving the world so that we also then know how to present a gospel that has biblical meaning behind it. You can't just walk out the door, recite John 3.16, and then go back inside and say that you have done evangelism. You know, um, and so how then do we prepare ourselves to make sure we're always students of our culture and people who are good listeners to hear, hey, we're using the same language, but actually it sounds like you might mean something different than I w- than I would if I was using that term. The word love is a, a a key one in that regard. I mean, when we talk about biblical love. That's a necessary word for us to use. It's something the Bible drives us to, but the Bible also defines love in a way that when we use love in our broader context, I mean, it has come to mean any number of things, but even myself, I talk about, I love God. God is love. I talk about, I love my mom. I love my wife, but I also say, I love pizza. And so there's a, there's a lexical spectrum that uh, comes along with that word that I want to make sure that as that spectrum grows and its usage grows in community, 
that if I'm saying God is love, that I'm able to explain what the biblical usage of that word is in contrast to some of the ways that it's being used in day-to-day -day language. And so that's what the neighborhood inspection is. Then each room is associated with different parts. The kitchen, or the, the sorry, the dining room is associated with uh, the idea of race and trying to expand the table and show that the the church is actually a place where we can work out of a confidence that in Christ, we are given a unity that when we find racial tension and brokenness in society, the church is actually the one with the resources to work out of a fundamental re, uh, unity rather than trying to make something unified that really, from a cultural perspective, you can identify the brokenness of interracial tension and say that's wrong, but you don't necessarily have any reason to be confident that it can be fixed. You're trying to create a fix from the outside without a real reason to be confident that it can happen. Well, it's, it's actually the church that has the resources to say, no, 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 in Christ, those dividing walls have been abolished and we are a new people of God, a diverse family. And so when we see brokenness and strife, we address that as those who are confident that we're working from unity and to restoration instead of trying to create it from the ether. So that's one there. And then the living room is looking at the, the inner life of the church versus its public life and how sometimes when we let our hair down, uh, we don't realize the whole world is watching. And I think specifically of the way that we interact with brothers and sisters on social media and the fact that we are invalidating the gospel message by the way that we treat gospel people in a public forum, thinking that we're standing for the truth, but really eviscerating brothers and sisters and undermining the, the beauty of the gospel more often than not for people who are passing by and observing the church. Uh, bedroom we already talked about backyard uh, is it is our church a place of manicure and um a place that's that looks nice where we've branded things just right or is it a place that's been shaped for ministry and driving us towards relationship so those sorts of things yeah and i i appreciate your answer and the missionary perspective on these things because when you are sitting inside and that's all you have seen uh, you know my example will be this room where i am recording from is my office so if this is what i have known for all my life and this is where i've been living of course i don't know what's going on the out uh, on the other side i think most uh, churches are like that you've been brought up in the uh, that church environment from your from before you your parents were and the world around us is changing and if we do not learn uh, what's going on out there because you made the reference to cultural uh, perspective earlier and unless we get out there learn those things and try to find these uh, nuances it would be very difficult for the church to maintain its witness and of course in that sense I think the world outside is right that oh look at these evangelicals they just crowd themselves in that room they just uh, they think that whatever is inside that's that's all it's true but that's not the truth because uh, people like you are out there they are bringing uh, that perspective in uh, and resurrecting or at least providing a counter uh, um, uh, narrative and i think that's uh, therefore it's important for other churches to uh, 
at least try to adopt this uh, missionary perspective. Um, as for the neighborhood, how can we contextualize the gospel in our communities? Or can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that um, for a long season, and maybe this is too stereotypical to actually uh, be the case for many, but you could you could use the stereotype of people who talk about evangelism as something of a a plan on their on their calendar where they're going to go do evangelism, which means they're going to go door to door and hand out some tracts or rehearse, uh, you know, a sequential presentation of the gospel that they've done a hundred thousand times before. And while by God's grace, that can be effective, and I don't want to diminish that work, the reality is, I think in a world that is shifting away, especially in an environment that used to be more familiar with Christian categories and a Judeo-Christian uh, a set of assumptions that you could come in and talk about a Jesus who came to earth and died and paid the just penalty for our sins on our place and rose again, that we could uh, have life with him. Those categories kind of already existed and made sense within a broader cultural understanding 50 years ago. But I think with less and less familiarity and a diverse set of questions and concerns that would fight against a biblical worldview, I think we need to be better prepared to tell the whole biblical story and to be able to enter into that story at the points of concern that our neighbors in conversation start bringing up, rather than being people who are restricted to a one-stop shop presentation of the gospel points, and then an invitation to respond. But to do that, we both need to be more familiar with the Bible than sometimes we are, particularly in light of its whole overarching story from creation to fall to God's plan of redemption to Christ and the eternity that is characterized by a restored creation and God's presence with us. We need to be better familiar with that whole story so that as we then become better familiar with our neighbors and how they perceive the world, we can begin to see, oh, 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 this is a place where you're expressing some sort of a desire that I think is God-given, but you're trying to find its satisfaction in something that's contrary. Can I invite you into a different way of looking at the world through the biblical story? And it may not be that, that front door that we've always thought of as like, there's brokenness in the world and Jesus is the solution. It may take a little bit longer for us to be able to explain some of these categories because frankly, culture is less, uh, less familiar with some of those, uh, those existing categories. They don't, they don't float on the water of our culture in the way that they used to. And so there needs to be some greater preparation to meet people where they are at here where they are already maybe sensitive to the the desires that the that the lord gave us and which the gospel satisfies but which their approaches to finding some satisfaction are, are leading them astray from the gospel yeah yeah so here's another question for you um i'm thinking about uh, missionary perspective and i'm thinking about what's going on in the united states so you came back after 7 years and the states were different. The United States changed so much, right? But at the same time, uh, while you were uh, over there, things changed over there too. 
So a time is, uh, you know, changing things faster than it, it used to be back, I don't know, 20 years ago, things used, <laughs> did change, but maybe we did not know it changing, or maybe sure. they were not changing as fast as, change, you know, as is changing now. I don't know what, which way we should go, whether we should uh, look at like, oh, things used, they were changed, but we didn't know, but, uh, or whether they were slow, uh, or whether the, the change was slow. I, I can't speak into those two two uh, differences, but I, I would like to ask you this. The change is real. It is, the change is happening, right? Yeah. So how do you think the perspective of global Christians who come to the United States, that's the change, and in a, in a very new way, the, yeah. the amount of immigrants that are coming to our shores is just amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you think the perspective of global Christians who come to the United States could inform and help American evangelicalism. Oh man, in many, many ways. That probably deserves another book or maybe several volumes of books. Uh, but maybe the the one that comes most clearly into and to the contact with this book, I think would be um in the way that we see the relationship between our faith and our nationality. Yeah. Um, I mean, where we were in North Africa, there were there were there's a existing christian population a historical church faithful brothers and sisters who have lived under the threat of persecution and the reality of persecution for the last 1400 years and so they have lived under an islamic government and have never been under the impression that the government was given to them in order to protect and promote their freedoms and their rights and yet they have persisted and they have existed faithfully. They have seen no limitation to their faith and their uh, their primary citizenship being one from heaven, which demands that regardless of the consequences, they are people to be uh, gospel proclaimers. They knew that to do that was going to have some lower kingdom ramifications but they said, I'm a person whose allegiance is primarily sworn to a higher kingdom. And so as they then have kind of shaped my perspective on what should I be, what should I be understanding as my primary aim in relationship to the government, I guess it's it's been helpful to say, rather than assuming, as we have in the United States for a long time, that the government exists primarily in a friendly relationship to us, to say, I don't need to keep that assumption in order to be a faithful Christian. And as soon as I start to dissuade myself from that idea that I need the government to protect my freedom so that I can practice my faith, all of a sudden I decouple myself from that need to say, oh, let's go back to the days that we had in the past when the practice of our faith was free and we had all these incentives to be Christians and it was something that was socially approved, even if it wasn't, you know, maybe a true Christianity that was being uh, encountered, there was sort of a general veneer of Christianness that made it nice and pleasant to be a Christian here. And if we don't have that, well, what are we to do? The, The church will be crushed. I guess I think our brothers and sisters from places where uh, persecution is rampant 
have a lot to offer us in reminding us that uh, no, no, there's a there's a promise that Jesus gave that the not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. So I hardly think a nation state can stop the advance of his kingdom. Yeah, and I think that's another thing, as you said, that there are there's need to need of more books to be written on that uh, perspective because that perspective is yet to be heard. Uh, from those voices, urban voices. That's what I mean when I say urban voices, not just uh, uniquely urban voice here in the United States. I'm also talking about cities in, in somewhere else. I'm talking about Bombay, Lahore, Karachi, uh, you know, um, Cairo. Um, I'm talking about those cities where God is doing something in the midst of persecution. And often I think that the spirit is where the church is. So church follows the spirit and spirit leads them. And I think sometimes we choke the spirit out of the church because we're not willing to follow the spirit. We want the spirit to follow us. And this, all of this complicated stuff is going on. And I think, uh, uh, you know, yes, uh, the church should rise and uh, proclaim the gospel. There is a short window. Um, you know, we not, don't know how long this window is open, but at the same time, the gospel never been uh, uh, not proclaimed since the day one. God has a, yeah. had a plan. It been uh, he be, he's been on the move, and uh, I, I love even when we don't hear, he's doing something amazing. Yeah. So yeah. Christianity, yeah. by and large, uh, you know, every every study tells us is growing under persecution in those places. Yes, overall, of course, it's a lower number because other things are happening. But the Christianity is growing in Africa. Christianity is growing in Asia. And uh, as you said, it, 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 need, it needs to be discussed more. Maybe we'll sit down yeah. another podcast and talk about that. But let, let can, me ask you this. Oh, you, you want to say something? Can I, yeah. Can I quick just brag on one of my Absolutely. North African brothers? Absolutely, um, please. Because uh, this, this illustrates it in my mind perfectly. Uh, it was in the middle of a upheaval politically, uh, kind of the second revolution that this country that we were living in had undergone. There's chaos in the streets, people being killed all the time. And it was the uh, Eid al-Adha uh, celebration. And I get a phone call from this guy. I mean, we're in martial law. There's people out in the streets, both celebrating Eid al-Adha, protesting the government coup. And it's craziness. And this guy says, hey, you got to come out to this main street, like, come see what we're doing. And, and it was, it was a scary time, but I was like, okay, I can, I'll go down there. I'll leave my family behind and I'll, I'll go see what you're doing. I show up and this guy's marching down the main street with a group of like 10 or 15 other Christians. He's got a whole banner out that says, uh, we are Christians called to love our Muslim neighbors in the name of Jesus. And so we wish you a happy Eid al-Adha. And then under this banner, they're handing out tracts and they're handing out Bibles and New Testaments and Jesus videos. And I said, brother, what are you doing? I was like, you, you can't do this. Like, you're, you're going to get thrown in jail. And he looked at me and he was like, what do you mean we can't do this? He's like, it's a new day. We don't know what we can't do. That's and that right. just, as I thought about that, I was like, man. I have students today who are telling me, well, I'm going to be a nurse, so I can't ever talk about my faith because that's, you know, against the the rules of nursing. And so I'll just kind of silently pray and hope that good things happen. And our default is, well, I can't do any of these things. This brother is saying, well, yeah, I don't know what's going to get me thrown in prison, but I do know that the gospel needs to be proclaimed. So I'm going to go try it. Let's, let's try something and find where that line is. <laughs> 
that just that amazing, challenge yeah it's me. a different yeah it's a different uh mindset matt um the here i mean well i think the church here uh, and i'm part of that church i'm american pastor first before i'm uh, pakistani so um I think that's the struggle I have because that's what I was brought up under persecution, mm-hmm. escape persecution. Uh, dad been thrown in prison for so many times under um, whole family was under cases. But as you said that it's just different mindset. The rationale here is how can I, uh, you know, God can't, God doesn't want me to lose my job. Of course, God doesn't want me to do. And, and it's affirmed by the church. Of course not. Of course not. That's why you need to be uh, wise like a serpent and innocent like a dove. So we take the scripture, we modify to our need, and then we like, okay, go church, do this. And I am, uh, I will not, uh, uh, I would not accuse my other brothers because I do the same thing. Because of course, I don't want them to lose their job. I want them to use their wisdom. But looking at the rationale of brothers in North Africa, or looking at the rationale somewhere in Egypt or Saudi or uh, Iran underground church or China underground church or somewhere else. It's, it just, it just, we can't, that's why it's, it's foolishness to those of us who thinks we are genius. We figured out how to, how, how to work out these details. Gospel is like, well, to those uh, who are really, it, it is offense. Cross is offense. And to them it's like, no, this is the message. It's gonna, this, if this is how I'm going to die, let it be but I'm going to preach it. So it's a rational, it's a mindset. It's one of those things. It's a whole a Colossians that Paul talks about. He says, uh, um, we were alienated in our thinking. You know, the original word is like a thinking, the way the process of thinking is was alienated. It was corrupted. I think it's still the case. The more educated we are and civilized we are, the more we try to make sense out of things and we rationalize and move things around and use theology to justify that so that we can have the life we have. And we don't we don't want to deal with the persecution, but the per- persecution is a promise, just like yes. the blessing is promised. Um, so that's a, that's a tough one. And as a pastor, wow. I still struggle to find the balance uh, because, uh, of course, um, when you're living in uh, every day, you know, in that situation where death is better than living because living is awful uh, in those countries. Uh, so you have a different uh, uh, approach to life. Here, um, you know, life is good. Uh, even the worst situation, life is much better than being in Lahore, Pakistan, uh, the way I was. Um, so it's just something, you know, it, it, it's difficult. It's experiential. Unless you experience, you would not understand why it's different. So you lived in North Africa, so you know why it's different. It's Sometimes it's hard to even put it in, in words what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's the spirit of God that moves and it causes you. It removes all rationality that we have uh, to justify our theology. It just removes those blinds, basically, and makes us, uh, mm-hmm. makes us to uh, enjoy and be truly blessed when we go through trials, as James talks about, right? So those kind of... Uh, ideas are there or Paul, you know, be, you know, I say again, uh, be joyful. The, the joy thing he talks about, it comes from, I think it comes from spirit you can't rationalize that. It's just impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So if you, if you ask what our brothers and sisters from the majority world could come to 
teach us. I think it would be teach us to see the places in all throughout the New Testament that talk about the gospel, our need to be faithful and stand firm, and the fact that that will bring persecution and struggle and trial, and that that's not a sign that something's going wrong, but that's a sign that it has been given to us to believe in Christ, and it has also been given to us to suffer for his name, as Paul tells the Philippians at the end of chapter one there. So yeah, and we don't want to the suffering, of course. Well, nobody right. wants the suffering, right? So have you received yeah. any pushback, or uh, do you expect any? Uh, I mean, it's hitting on some pretty touchy issues in many ways. Um, I think the last chapter, um, prior to kind of a concluding chapter about a missional ecclesiology, uh, is looking at our address and this idea of where do we see our primary citizenship? Where is home for us? Is it primarily in our Americanness and our freedoms granted to us on the ver on the basis of our our passport and all that comes with it, or do we function according to a citizenship that is from heaven that cannot be shaken and will withstand even if we do walk through sufferings and things? So I, I imagine that that sort of a conversation, especially with some of the increased attention given to a Christian form of nationalism that seems to be popularly on the rise, or at least kind of loudly talked about. Um, uh, I could imagine there'll be some pushback on some of those things, but the book doesn't come out until February 21st. So, so far, it's only been the endorsers and they seem to like it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What can American evangelicals listening in do to apply this to their lives? On hmm. the flip side, many resources spread around the globe uh, come from American evangelicals. What could a global Christian take away from the episode? Yeah, I think for all of us, um, there's a, a challenge to being able to say, today as I get up and as mm -hmm. I anticipate having you know, the next 14 hours of being awake and going about my day, am I going to go about it as I always have? just doing the things that come naturally and the things I'm used to? Or am I going to be de begin the day by praying, Lord, if I were a missionary in this place, how would I look differently at it? What would be the things that I would see as opportunities to proclaim the gospel or to invest in loving my neighbor um, it, that I would overlook today if I, if I wasn't intentional? And so I think that's applicable, whether you're in the U.S. or whether you're in Lahore, this idea of saying, I don't want to be so accustomed to my habits and what is familiar that I miss out on the urgency to live as a disciple and a disciple maker in the space that the Lord has me today. That's awesome. Before we close out today's episode, is there anything, anything else you would like to add? And I'm just excited for I'm excited for this book to come out because it is one that has come from both my own deeply, uh, deeply learned and challenging experience. I mean, I, I say in the beginning, as I worked th through this book, I was preaching to myself and convicted over and over again of the fact that, like you alluded to earlier, I can say all these things, but I have to turn around and live them too. And yes. so... It, it is a challenge and it's a, there's a dailiness to picking up our cross and to mm -hmm. being ready to live on mission and to mm -hmm. trust the Lord to provide 
wisdom, insight, and the, the strength to do the things that we can't, but it's worth it. Yeah. Matt, if uh, listeners want to get in touch with you, what are the easiest ways? So I tend to put uh, things that I write and things like that on Twitter. If you would follow me on there, it's at M-A-B-E-N-N-E-T-T-8-2 is my handle there. Um, otherwise, uh, if you're interested in picking up any of the resources that uh, I've been able to write, you can find those on Amazon, um, 40 Questions About Islam, uh, the Quran and the Christian, both published by Kriegel, and then this new one, Hope for American Evangelicals, is with B&H. That's awesome. Great. That will also be included in the episode descriptions. And for the last thing, because we talk about heavy topics, I would like to ask you to tell us a joke. Tell us a joke to lighten the mood, brother. Go on. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to do better than that. Not only am I going to tell you a joke, but I'm uh -huh. going to give you access to a, a Twitter account that will leave you with endless jokes. All right. So <laughs> at dad says jokes is all these dad jokes that come out all the time. They're brilliant. But one of my favorites is uh, my wife thinks it's weird that I stare at the window during heavy thunderstorms. I think it'd be a lot less weird if she just let me in. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh man only dad oh no. thank you so much for being on the show again that was uh, matt bennett and thank you to all our listeners so we truly could not do this without you if you learned something have a topic suggestion or would like to leave us the feedback drop us a note at oururbanvoices.com be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review whenever, wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from diverse voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Please check back for new episodes every week.